Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. Great to be with you. I hope you're having a good day. We've just finished a series uh, called Six Marks of a Church Culture That Deeply Changes Lives. Uh, many of you listened to it. We, get, we see a very large response to it. I hope uh, you're discussing it with your leadership team, maybe your board. Uh, and again, it was not meant to be a, a look at the vision and mission of your ministry, but actually what's a healthy culture that deeply changes lives? What does that look like? It was based on a, an ebook, which again is available on our website at emotionallyhealthy.org slash church culture. That's emotionallyhealthy.org slash church culture. And I want to encourage you to download it if you haven't yet and perhaps talk about it with your team. And it talks about six elements, slow down spirituality, integrity and leadership, beneath the surface discipleship, healthy community, passionate marriages and singleness, and then every person in full-time ministry. And that we as leaders, uh, we're seeking to create a culture, but more importantly, we want to be the culture out of who we are that we create. In fact, you can't help but create a culture out of who you are. And so today, what I want to do is I want to share with you an excerpt out of the audio version of the book, The Emotionally Healthy Leader, because it is perhaps the most important section of that book. And it's really what makes Christian leadership so different than secular leadership that we're surrounded by in the world. And now many of you listening to this podcast, you're in your car, perhaps you're, you're driving to work, or maybe you're going on an errand or going to see a friend. Maybe you're jogging in a park or on a street or on some kind of trailer. Maybe you're just simply walking. Maybe you're cleaning the house or just sitting in a chair somewhere, taking a break. But I want to invite you to take this phrase and, and slow down for loving union and let it ruminate in your head. Because what you're going to do is you're going to hear now a section uh, from the Emotionally Healthy Leader book around this theme of slowing down for loving union. And I'm going to come at it from a number of different angles. Uh, and it's so critical because it's, it's easy to lead without Jesus. It's actually easy to live as a Christian doing religious acts and Christian things without necessarily in being in loving union with Jesus. In fact, Jesus knew this would be one of the great temptations of Christian workers uh, in life, and that's why he put it right in the Sermon on the Mount, and he talked about that in saying, many, many will come in that day and having done great things, and Jesus could say, I don't even know you, even though you've done these great things for me. And so I'm going to define loving union in this uh, excerpt you're going to hear in just a few minutes as to lovingly allow God full access in your life. And I'm going to expound on that. And you're going to come at it from different angles, like how it impacts you personally, that you can't do God's work your way without paying a steep price long term, and that you can't live at warp speed without warping your soul, perhaps not initially, but for sure long term. But the impact's not just on you personally, the impact of not slowing down for loving union actually is on your everybody you're influencing, your team that you're leading. Uh, it's going to impact the culture of that team, the decisions and priorities of your team. Uh, it's going to impact the family that you're a part of. Uh, and of course, it's going to impact the world that we're seeking to reach, at least the segment of the world that God's called you to influence as salt and light for Jesus. Because the way you interact with the world, what's flowing out of you, your, your priorities, your, your strategies, uh, apart from abiding in Jesus, remaining in him, uh, or uh, I like to use the word relaxing in him is a nice way of describing to abide in him, to remain in him. Jesus made it very clear there is no fruit apart from 
slowing down for loving union with him, without abiding in him. And regardless of how good something may look on the outside, and many ministries, many churches, uh, many things look really good on the outside. But when you get on the inside, uh, deep in, you find out things are not nearly as good. And Jesus talked about that. So remember, we're involved in a colossal spiritual warfare with powers of darkness, Satan and all of his hordes. Jesus was very clear on that. And one of the names for demonic powers or Satan is splitter. His name actually means split. His desire is to split you from loving union with Jesus. And But it is the Father's will to draw you to himself by the Holy Spirit. So let me invite you to take a deep breath. And here it is uh, now, an invitation to slow down for loving union with Jesus. Enjoy. Larry is the 41-year-old founding pastor of a rapidly growing church. He and his wife, Rebecca, have been married for 20 years and have four children. In his 18 years leading the church, the congregation has grown from a core group of 100 to more than 4,000, with 35 staff members. Larry is friendly, easygoing, and loved by his team. Things with the church and his life seem to be going well until the day he abruptly submitted his resignation to the personnel committee. He said he was burnt out from the last few years especially after completing a recent capital campaign for a new worship center. It turned out, however, there was much more to the story. A recent visitor to the church had encountered Larry with another woman at a hotel in a nearby city. And it was not a random encounter, but a three-year on-again, off-again affair. Larry seemed to think his resignation would somehow prevent the news from being discovered by the church, but it was too late for that. Later, it was also discovered that Larry had accumulated a sizable financial debt in recent years. Larry resigned, his marriage ended, the church was left to pick up the pieces. It's a sadly familiar story, isn't it? But there is another aspect of the story that raises issues every Christian leader needs to grapple with. During the three years that Larry's life was going off the rails, the church was thriving. Attendance increased by 700 Many people came to faith in Christ. The giving and the ministry budget increased, and the church's impact on the community expanded. Larry even preached a popular series on biblical marriage and family life for six weeks during that time. Somehow, the church experienced short-term success, even when something was terribly wrong at the leadership level. But after Larry's resignation, the church swiftly spiraled downward. People felt betrayed and deceived. Fingers were pointed. Resources and energies once devoted to outreach were redirected to helping people within the church grieve and heal. The budget was slashed by 40%. This meant that ministries, both locally and internationally, were discontinued or radically cut back. Frustrated church members wanted to know why staff and members of the church board hadn't noticed any early warning signs of Larry's problems. At the end of a quarterly congregational meeting in which this issue was raised, the board chairperson summarized the board's response. We saw things that concerned us. Larry was always on the move, juggling new projects, speaking at conferences, hiring new staff. It was hard for us to keep up with how quickly the church was changing. 
None of us probed and asked deeper questions. The reality is we were so caught up in the excitement over things like the new building campaign and the attendance numbers skyrocketing that we disregarded what we did notice. And we attributed his behavior to the normal stresses that come with growth. A long pause followed. The room grew painfully quiet. The board chair quietly acknowledged what many others were thinking. What makes this whole situation so hard to understand is that some of our most powerful weekend services took place during the three years he was having his affair. The Danger of Leading Without Jesus If you're a leader in a church, the board's chair statement has to hit you right in the gut. Somehow, it has become part of our default thinking that external markers of success are an indication that all must certainly be well at the leadership level. We wouldn't be successful otherwise, right? But as Larry's story demonstrates, it is possible to build a church, an organization, or a team by relying only on our gifts, talents, and experience. We can serve Christ in our own energy and wisdom. We can expand a ministry or a business without thinking much of Jesus or relying on him in the process. We can boldly preach truths we don't live. And if our efforts prove successful, few people will notice or take issue with the gaps between who we are and what we do. Jesus warns us about the consequences of engaging in ministry activity without him. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Matthew 7, 21-23 Jesus confronts the self-deception of those who do wonderful things in his name. They prophesy. They drive out demons. They perform miracles. They are very impressive and successful in really helping people. What could be wrong with that? By all appearances, their efforts have the marks of a vibrant, growing ministry. But Jesus says one thing is terribly wrong. I never knew you, he says. Wait a minute, how can that be? He knew us in our mother's wombs. Jesus knows every hair on our heads. He knows us better than we know ourselves. How could Jesus say, I never knew you? And in any event, wouldn't it have made more sense for him to say, you never knew me? The force of the biblical word used for the verb know refers to the intimate personal knowing of relationship. It is similar to the oneness of Adam and Eve in the garden when they were naked and without shame, Genesis 2.25. We may be sincere in saying, Lord, Lord, and have what appears to be a successful ministry. We may know a lot about God in our heads, but none of these things matter if we remain unknown by Christ. What matters is the genuine fruit that comes only out of a deep and surrendered connection with Jesus. Bearing fruit requires slowing down enough to give Jesus direct access to every aspect of our lives and our leadership. Just because God has access to everything that is true about us does not mean God has access to us. Loving union is an act of surrender, giving God complete access and we can't do that in a hurry. We must be humbly accessible with the door of our hearts continually open to him. 
Jesus doesn't force that on us. It is something only we can do. Imagine accumulating a lifetime of leadership trophies only to have Jesus say to you at the end, I never knew you. The fact that many of us will present our credentials at the final judgment only to be denied by Jesus should be genuinely frightening to all of us. It is not enough to call Jesus Lord. It is not enough to be busy racking up impressive ministry achievements. Jesus condemns these outwardly successful followers in the harshest terms and characterizes their efforts not merely as weak or failed, but as outright evil doing. The key question is, to what extent is the door of our heart open to him? Have we allowed the incessant demands of leadership to so preoccupy us that we don't have time to keep that door open continuously? Is our abiding in Jesus sporadic, or are we operating on a kind of spiritual autopilot? Remember, Jesus doesn't say we can't lead or build a church without him. What he does say is that our efforts are worth nothing unless they flow out of a relationship of loving union with him, John 15, 5. In other words, although what we do matters, who we are matters much more. Because we have so much to do and so much on our minds, we tend to accept it as normal that worship leaders or musicians who do not connect to Jesus personally during the week can still lead people into the presence of Jesus during weekend worship services. Gifted communicators can teach scripture and train others without devoting the time needed for God's message to penetrate their own hearts. Church administrators can effectively build infrastructure, supervise staff, and manage finances without having a consistent devotional life with God. It's not that we would intentionally advocate for leaders to conduct themselves in these ways. It is that we don't consider it much of a problem when they do. I was in my early years as a Christian when I first came to grips with the sad truth that God appeared to use prominent Christian leaders whose relationship with Jesus was either non-existent or seriously underdeveloped. It was a discovery that left me confused and disoriented. Yet, after decades in ministry, I am no longer so confused. Why? Because I have experienced to some degree what it's like to be one of those leaders. I have prepared and preached sermons without thinking about or spending time with Jesus. I know the experience of doing good things that helped a lot of people while being too busy or caught up in my own whirlwind of leadership worries to be intimately connected to Jesus. In an exhaustive biblical study, theologian Jonathan Edwards, 1703 to 1758, wrote about how often scripture describes people who do things for God without having a life with God. Characters such as Balaam, the Old Testament prophet, Judas Iscariot, and Saul were all engaged in what most certainly would have been considered effective works for God by their communities, but without having an authentic connection to him. The only mark of genuine spiritual maturity and ministry effectiveness, Edwards concluded, is the outworking of agape, a self-giving love for God and others. That is the one quality of our lives and leadership the devil can never counterfeit. And the source of that agape love can be found only in a life of loving union with God. As Christian leaders, it's unlikely most of us would take issue with any of this. Of course we need to experience loving union with God. Who is going to disagree with that? Here's where the problem comes in. Doing our part to cultivate a relationship of loving union with God requires time. 
time that paradoxically we don't have because we are too busy serving him. And so intentional or not, we find ourselves bypassing our relationship with God. In the process, we drift into prioritizing leadership over love. In other words, we fail to slow down for loving union with God. How does this happen? Most of the time, it begins very subtly. Yet the consequences of failing to lead out of loving union are so far-reaching, it is critical to clearly define what loving union is and isn't. What is loving union? Loving union is not the de facto equivalent of devotions and quiet time, nor is it about engaging in a long list of spiritual practices or having emotionally intense experiences with God. Loving union is not about managing your schedule better or simply not being busy. It is not so much about having a sustainable pace of life. As important as such things may be, it is possible to engage in them without necessarily experiencing loving union. So what is loving union? And why does it require so much time? In his classic book, Prayer, theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar describes Jesus this way. Here is a man, sinless, because he has lovingly allowed the Father's will full scope in his life. Think about that simple but profound statement for a moment. Read it a few more times until it really sinks in. What von Balthasar is describing here is loving union to lovingly allow God to have full access to your life. These are Jesus' words to the Christians in Laodicea and to us. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Revelation 3.20 In loving union, we keep that door wide open. We allow the will of God to have full access to every area of our lives including every aspect of our leadership, from difficult conversations and decision-making to managing our emotional triggers. Cultivating this kind of relationship with God can't be hurried or rushed. We must slow down and build into our lives a structure and rhythm that makes this kind of loving surrender routinely possible. The question we must wrestle with is this, in what ways does my current pace of life and leadership enhance or diminish my ability to allow God's will and presence full scope in my life. Any spiritual practices we may choose then become a means to that end, not the end themselves. But make no mistakes, remaining surrendered while navigating the intense pressures and demands of leadership is no small task. Jesus faced overwhelming pressures in his life, pressures that far outstrip anything most of us will ever face. Yet he routinely stepped away from those endless leadership demands to spend significant time with the Father. He slowed down to ensure he was in sync with God, that he was in the Father and the Father was in him, powerfully filling every crevice of his body, mind, and spirit. In routinely stepping away from his active work, he entrusted the outcome of his circumstances, problems, and ministry to the Father. And as a result, every action Jesus took was rooted in a place of deep rest and centeredness out of his relationship with God. Just as Jesus lived in relaxed, loving union with the Father, he invites us to share in that relationship with him. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. The Greek verb translated as remain can be translated as 
abide, to continue with, to stick with, to make one's home with. It captures the non-negotiable requirement of what it means to follow Jesus in loving union. He promises that if we do this, fruit will always follow. However, when we refuse to slow down for loving union, the consequences can be significant and long-lasting, rippling out from us and impacting those we lead and beyond. How healthy is your experience of loving union with God? Use the list of statements that follow to do a brief assessment of your loving union with God. Next to each statement, write down the number that best describes your response. Use the following scale. Five equals always true of me. Four equals frequently true of me. Three equals occasionally true of me. Two equals rarely true of me. One equals never true of me. One, my highest priority as a leader is to take time each day to remain in loving union with Jesus. Two, I offer God full access to my interior life as I make decisions, interact with team members, and initiate new plans. Three, I wait to say yes or no to new opportunities until I have sufficient time to prayerfully and carefully discern God's will. Four, I routinely step away from leadership demands and make time to delight in God's gifts, lingering with friends over a meal, listening to a beautiful piece of music, enjoying a nature walk, watching a sunset, etc. Five, I have a dedicated and regular practice of meditating on Scripture in order to commune with and be transformed by Jesus. Six, I regularly set aside time for experiences of solitude and silence that enable me to be still and undistracted in God's presence. Seven, I am relaxed, comfortable with, and prayerful about my limits, my available gifts, time, energy, knowledge, as well as the limits of those around me. Eight, when I become aware that I am anxious or feeling emotionally triggered in my leadership, I slow down to be with God, myself, and possibly spiritual companions. Nine, I maintain intentional spiritual rhythms and practices, Sabbath, prayer, community, reading, etc., that enable me to delight in God regardless of the expectations, needs, or opportunities around me. 10. I am routinely aware of and think about God during my waking hours, at work or at home, and while doing routine tasks such as errands, exercising, eating, being with friends and family, etc. Take a moment. To briefly review your responses, what stands out most to you? At the end of the chapter are some general observations to help you better understand where you're at as you consider your next steps. How loving union and non-loving union with God impacts leadership. Allow me to take a guess at what you might be thinking at this point. Perhaps it's something along these lines. Pete, all of this sounds good but I have a really demanding role in a complex situation. I need the bottom line. What does it mean to pursue loving union with God in the midst of the very real demands of leadership? It's a great question. And perhaps the best way to get at it is to consider a few scenarios that demonstrate the differences in leaders who respond from a place of loving union or non-loving union with God. Scenario one. Lucas is a church planter with 50 people in his core group. After almost nine months of preparation, the church has officially launched. 
more than 35 new people visit in the first four weeks. Lucas and his team are filled with excitement and anticipation about what God is doing. The only problem is Lucas has more to do than is humanly possible. Non-loving union response. Lucas makes his to-do list faithfully each Sunday night. He knows he can't do it all, so he weighs the pros and cons of each item, trying to identify the activities that have the most potential for impact. Then he sets his priorities, hoping he can cross at least half of them off his list by the end of the week. Lucas prayerfully studies his sermon text for his morning devotions. He works hard, putting in long days and sometimes sleepless nights. He intercedes for the needs of the church and the people it serves. Fear of the church failing causes him anxiety, but he pushes it away in an effort to focus on the positive. He thinks, we won't fail because God is faithful, and he's obviously in this. I don't have time for much else right now, but once we reach 100 people in attendance, things should stabilize. Loving union response. Lucas is acutely aware of the potentially perilous situation in which he finds himself. The demands on his time are great. His greatest challenge and the highest priorities on his to-do list are to maintain his Sabbath rhythms, to spend time in solitude and silence, and to immerse himself in scripture aside from times of sermon preparation. He is careful about allowing sufficient time to invite Jesus into every part of his life and leadership. Once a month, he meets with a spiritual director because he knows he needs an anchor in the stormy seas of this first year leading the church. He prioritizes his to-do list on Sunday nights by seeking to discern God's direction and wisdom. He surrenders his anxieties to God and openly shares his fears and vulnerabilities with his spouse, church planting coach, and a close friend. He prays for grace to do God's will in a profound and humble awareness of how easy it would be for him to miss Jesus during this demanding season of planting a church. Scenario 2. Ruth is the executive director of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, EHS, a nonprofit ministry active in the United States and 25 countries around the world. She is the organization's only full-time employee, but also leads a small and growing staff team. Ruth left a marketplace career and began to work for EHS at one-third of her previous salary. She reports to a strong, creative, visionary boss, me, and is responsible to manage a rapidly growing ministry with limited financial resources. Non-loving union response. During her train ride to work, Ruth reads a page from a free devotional pamphlet she picked up at church. Feeling confident that she has begun her day with God, she doesn't think much more about him during the day unless there is a crisis or problem. In fact, all her waking thoughts are about work, since the needs around her are never-ending. Her attitude is, if I don't put my whole life into this, I am not giving my best for God's work. She also worries about the ministry's finances and what could happen if it fails to thrive and grow. Gaining the approval of her boss and the ministry board is always on her mind. For Ruth, any failure in the ministry is a personal failure. She has hired the best people with the right skills to serve on her team and doesn't ask questions about their personal lives. The focus of Ruth's work is to add more projects, grow the budget, and expand the work. Loving union response. During her train ride to work, Ruth spends time praying, reading, and reflecting on scripture. 
She endeavors to maintain a sense of connection to God throughout the day, listening to him and inviting him into her efforts to build his ministry, not her own. She feels light and free, even though she is earning one-third of her previous salary. Ruth works hard, but sets a boundary around evenings and weekends so she has time to rest and to create a larger life in God. She practices Sabbath and intentionally cultivates her relationships with friends, family, and a few spiritual companions. While she loves her role as the executive director, she feels she can walk away from it at any time. Why? She will tell you, I know that I am beautiful, lovable, and loved by God and others. She doesn't feel pressure to get things done quickly. In fact, when she begins to feel overloaded, she expresses that to her boss, me, and takes a break. She invites God to help her discern what to do in light of her personal limits as well as those of EHS. In the past, she might have developed a marketing plan and then prayed, God, here are the steps I'm taking to market EHS. I ask that you bless it. Now, she carefully considers her options and prays, Lord, what is the best way to maximize our impact with our limited time and resources? She is profoundly aware that all her actions affect the people who report to her, so she is prayerful in preparing for meetings and careful not to rush through them. What's most important to me is not what I want, but what is God's best for the members of my team. She sees her staff as people with feelings and concerns, not a means to an end. Her mentoring of them goes beyond skills to do their jobs better and includes expressing interest in their personal lives. She works on her own emotional and spiritual issues, fully aware that perhaps more than anything else, it is her own transformation that affects her team most. Scenario three, Dylan leads the small group ministry in his church where he has been on staff for five years. He recently attended an innovative leadership conference where he heard inspiring stories of other small group ministries that have exploded in growth. Inspired by all the creative ministry strategies he discovered, he returns to the church filled with excitement and fresh vision. Non-loving union response. Dylan thanks God for the conference and is eager to act on what he's learned. On his first day back at the office, he sets up a meeting with his five key leaders to share his vision and ideas. As he prepares for the meeting, Dylan wants to help the team hit the ground running, so he identifies three practical steps they can implement immediately. He prays, asking God to give his team hearts that are open rather than resistant change. Dylan is only vaguely aware of an underlying anxiety and disregards the adrenaline running through his body. He knows the lead pastor will be thrilled if they can make significant progress connecting new people in the church through new groups. He charges into the meeting with great enthusiasm, eager to envision and mobilize his team to help take small groups and the church to the next level. Loving Union Response Before Dylan sets up a meeting with his five key leaders, he takes an afternoon alone with God to pray and process his excitement from the conference. He is fully aware of the anxiety and adrenaline rush he feels. Dylan asks himself questions like these. Where is my excitement coming from? And what might God be communicating to me through it? Am I excited because implementing these new ideas will help my ministry to grow? Which means the lead pastor and church board will see the great job I am doing? Or is it truly because it could help so many people? He then sets up a meeting to talk with Fran, a wise colleague, 
so he can share his excitement with her over lunch. He asks her for feedback and any insights she might have. Next, he meets with the lead pastor to get additional feedback. After taking three weeks for still more reading, reflection, and prayer, Dylan calls the meeting with his five key leaders. He shares his experience from the conference and describes the ideas and strategies that excite him most. He listens to everyone's feedback, concerns, and questions. During the meeting, Dylan listens for God through his team and through his own thoughts and emotions. The team prays together for wisdom and discernment and then agrees on three specific action steps. It is important to note that the loving union responses in all three scenarios are not a leadership strategy, not a more effective way of doing. Instead, they are the natural outgrowth of loving union with God, a different way of being. These kinds of responses are possible only when we intentionally allow Jesus' will and presence to have full access in every area of our lives. Both Lucas, the church planter, and Ruth, the executive director, have more to do that is humanly possible. That is one of the greatest challenges most of us routinely face. Their approach to decision-making, setting priorities, and how they define success is grounded not in circumstances or outcomes, but in their loving union with God. As a result, they enjoy a unique God-given freedom and joy in their roles, despite the pressures they face. As a result of slowing down to be with God, Dylan, the small group ministry leader, wisely and sensitively is able to bring his team on a new journey. His commitment to remain in loving union empowers him and his team to more fully discern God's plan for their ministry. The consequences of not slowing down for loving union may not always seem evident at first. We can justify skimming on time with God and rushing through leadership tasks, thinking, okay, maybe I got a little ahead of myself, but at least we seem further down the road than before. No harm done. But left unchecked, this approach to leadership eventually creates an illusion of healthy growth and progress that will eventually bear bad fruit. You know you're not experiencing loving union when you can't shake the pressure you feel from having too much to do in too little time, are always rushing, routinely fire off quick opinions and judgments, are often fearful about the future, are overly concerned about what others think, are defensive and easily offended, are routinely preoccupied and distracted, consistently ignore the stress, anxiety, and tightness of your body, feel unenthusiastic or threatened by the success of others, routinely spend more time talking than listening. The Consequences of Not Slowing Down The Apostle Paul reminds us that the desire to be a leader is a noble task, 1 Timothy 3.1. It is fine, good, praiseworthy, and excellent to give our lives in service to others for Jesus' sake. The church and the world desperately need leaders, but we will only make things worse if we don't lead God's way. When we fail to slow down for loving union, sooner or later, we will reap the consequences, and they are serious, both for us and for those we aim to serve. In nearly 30 years of ministry, I have reaped all of the consequences I'm about to describe. While I can say I learned a lot as a result, it was a painful and costly education. My hope is that you can learn from my mistakes, avoid these pitfalls, and chart a different course than so many of us who have gone before you. You can't do God's work your way without paying a steep price.
Moses, along with his brother and executive pastor, Aaron, worked and waited for almost 40 years to enter the promised land. Having started with 603,550 men to manage, not to mention all the women and children, Moses and Aaron's patience was repeatedly tested to the limit by a seemingly endless barrage of complaints. When the people cry about their lack of food and water and accuse Moses of bringing them out into the desert to die, Moses is livid. At this point, he is also exhausted and has little capacity to manage his anger and resentment. Imagine the scene as he loses his cool. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Numbers 20. 7 to 12. There is no doubt that Moses and Aaron are serving the people. Only now, after decades of faithful leadership, Moses strays from loving union with God and takes matters into his own hands. He lashes out and rebukes the people, calling them rebels. Rather than honoring and obeying God, he relies on an old strategy of striking the rock. Because, hey, why not? It worked once before. Exodus 17, 6. And miraculously enough, sufficient water bursts forth again to satisfy the thirst of nearly three million people and their animals. The people's needs get met, but Moses and Aaron pay a stiff price. God names their underlying offense, rebellion, and unbelief, and prohibits them from leading the people into the promised land. I've struck the rock out of frustration and anger at God's roundabout ways more often than I care to admit. I also know the experience of opening a staff meeting in prayer and asking for direction, only to then proceed in making my own plans without God. I have relied on what worked in the past and what appeared to be working for other leaders and ministries without a prayerful process of discerning God's will for our particular situation. Why? It was quicker and easier. And like so many other leaders I know, I have missed out on the joy and contentment of the promised land that would have come had I been willing to do God's will, God's way, and God's timing. So when was the last time you took matters into your own hands and struck the rock in your leadership? What promised land might you be sacrificing right now? Whatever the particulars of your situation, I can promise that one of the first things to go will be Jesus' joy and peace. Leadership will become hard. The people you serve will feel like a burden, and you will find yourself wishing you could be somewhere else. You will begin to feel like you are wandering in a desert asking, where is God? What happened? You might eventually realize where you got off course and attempt to go back and do it all over again, but then you may wonder, what will be the cost of that? You can't live at warp speed without warping your soul. 
When I challenge leaders to rearrange their lives in order to pursue loving union, one of the most common responses I get is, Pete, I just don't have that kind of time. If that's your response as well, then chances are good that you're moving too fast. And even if you somehow manage to keep from dropping any of the balls you're juggling, the speed at which you're living and leading is exacting a hidden toll. Warp speed will blind you to the damage you are doing to your soul every time. An important yet often overlooked New Testament story illustrates the dangers of rushing to have a powerful ministry without slowing down for loving union with Jesus. When the seven sons of Sceva observed the Apostle Paul's extraordinary miracles and the explosive growth of the Ephesian church, they want a piece of the action. They long for Paul's powerful ministry and success. Here's the story. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Act 19, 13-16. If we gave them the benefit of the doubt, we would say that the seven sons of Sceva were trying to do a good thing. They wanted to participate in advancing the kingdom. However, chances are good their motives were mixed at best. In an effort to capture some of the prestige that was bestowed on those who released God's power over evil spirits, they took a spiritual shortcut. They skipped over making a long-term investment in a life of loving union, the source of Paul's miracles, and rushed headlong into spiritual realities they did not understand and were woefully ill-equipped to deal with. As a result, they barely escaped with their lives. Whenever we find ourselves wanting the ministry impact of Jesus, while simultaneously resisting spending time with Jesus, we are positioning ourselves for a beating and some variation on being run out of the house, naked and bleeding. The seven sons of Sceva tried to speak and act on truths that were not rooted in their lives. They did not have sufficient strength in their life with God to support the level of spiritual warfare in which they were engaged. The integrity gaps in their walk with God exposed them to danger and harm. I have never been beat up by evil spirits or run out of the house naked and bleeding, but I do know the empty feeling of speaking truths to others that I had not digested myself. I have borrowed insights or ideas because they worked for someone else. I was impressed by how powerful the words sounded when a particular person said them. Why wouldn't they also be powerful for me? The problem was I didn't have time to allow God's words spoken through them to actually become God's words to me. I thought, there is just too much to do now. God, you know the pressure I'm under. I'll get to it later. Just help me help my people now. So what happened? Nothing. My words rang hollow, little power, little effect, little life change. Every time we do what the sons of Sceva did, we buy into an illusion. We present ourselves as something or someone we are not. We don't take the time to give Jesus access to our motivations and fears. 
then our souls shrivel and warp as we stray further and further from what is true. You can't skim without paying a long-term price. Jesus spent over 90% of his life, 30 of his 33 years in obscurity. In those hidden years, he forged a life of loving union with the Father. The observable greatness of his three-year ministry is built on the foundation of the investment Jesus made in those unseen years. And Jesus continued to make this investment in his relationship with the Father throughout his three-year ministry, regardless of the ministry pressures he faced. From his first days in Capernaum, waking up early in the morning to pray, Mark 1.35, to his final hours in Gethsemane, Matthew 26.36, Jesus set aside time to be with the Father. If it was necessary for Jesus to have this kind of foundation and ongoing relationship with the Father, we'd have to be delusional to think we could skim on investing in our hidden life in God without experiencing long-term consequences. Jesus models contentment under pressure, calmness in the face of betrayal, and power to forgive at his crucifixion, all of which is the fruit of a long history of oneness with his Father. I am convinced that a significant reason so many Christian leaders lack the qualities Jesus modeled is because we skim in our relationship with God. Instead of contentment and calm, our leadership is marked by discontent and anxiety. Ryan's story is typical. Ryan has been the lead pastor of First Assembly for the last 11 years. He faithfully has his quiet time each morning, reading through the Bible once a year. He follows this half hour of reading with 10 to 15 minutes of intercession for his family, church, and the world. Ryan works six days a week, sometimes seven in the case of emergencies, and takes three weeks each summer for vacation. In addition to preparing sermons and leading the Sunday service, Ryan faithfully visits the sick, teaches midweek Bible study, oversees volunteers who coordinate different ministries, and serves as the police chaplain for his town. When he began, Weekend church attendance averaged about 200 people. Good things are happening at First Assembly. People consistently come to Christ. The church is unified. A number of healthy relationships provide a great sense of safety and stability to the larger church family. The students' and children's ministries are strong. And the church is active serving the city in a number of practical ways. However, Ryan feels like a failure. He is discontented and unhappy. After 11 years of investing blood, sweat, and tears, weekend church attendance remains static, with only a slight gain over the 200 he started out with. He thinks, I'm not a very good leader. If I were, we would have more people by now. At the annual denominational meetings, it is always the achievements of the larger churches that are celebrated. As much as he knows there is more to church leadership than attendance numbers, he feels he is measured by how many people he has. It gnaws at his gut, and he frequently feels anxious. Ryan loves pastoring people one-on-one. -on -one. He knows he needs to learn some new skills for leadership to release people's gifts. Nonetheless, his larger, more far-reaching problem is not external. It is internal. Although his practice of morning quiet time is well-intentioned, it is narrow. By limiting his quiet time to scripture reading for sermon preparation and intercession for his church and family, means he has few spiritual practices that allow Jesus access to his interior life. He does not practice solitude or silence or spend time simply meeting Jesus in Scripture. Ryan is skimming. 
Ryan needs a wider range of spiritual practices to position himself for a deep, beneath-the-surface transformation of his life in Christ. He needs an overhaul of the way he follows and immerses himself in the love of Jesus. This will enable him to redefine success as being faithful to what God has given him to do in his church and to resist the internal pressure he feels that is causing so much dis-ease and anxiety. If Ryan summons the courage to take this journey, he will very likely experience the three classic elements of conversion. A revelatory insight into who he is and who God is, a radical turning to Jesus, and a deep transformation of his life. It's a conversion I hope you might experience as well. In asking you to make the necessary changes to slow down for loving union with God, I am not asking you to add one more item to your already overburdened schedule. I am asking you to make a U-turn and rearrange your life around an entirely new way of being a leader. In fact, what I'm asking you to do is nothing short of a groundbreaking, culture-defying act of rebellion against the contemporary Western way of doing leadership.